But as I was uh, studying for this passage this week, uh, Alexis and I are in the process of kind of renovating our, our, our house a little bit. Lots of projects to be done. And one of those things is uh, we updated our furniture. So that made me think back to when we first got married. Uh, we first got married. We lived in a little condo close to the church in Smyrna. And uh, we really didn't care what our furniture looked like. Or we just we needed couches, so we'd pay pennies for it to get one. Uh, and how it ended up working out is that we got the old couches that were in the Smyrna Campus Student Lounge. We took them to our house. Uh, so they were pretty grimy. They needed some things needed to be fixed. I had to rebuild the frame on some of them because kids, I guess, just run in there and just do a can opener in the middle of the couch. So it's, a lot of them were broke. But we fixed the frames on. They held up for a few years. But when Alexis and I decided to buy our house to move to Murfreesboro, we were like, okay, let's kind of let's take it up a notch. Let's get some nicer furniture uh, in hopes that we would have furniture that would last for a long while. And it really has. Um, but we focused on one category that we did not before. Uh, and that's durability, uh, because we were hoping, and the Lord gave us a daughter in such a way that she would come in, and our couches would be able to withstand the beating that she would give them. Uh, my daughter, uh, Florence, is, is a beautiful joy, and if you have kids in your family, or the Lord is being going to be faithful to you to give you kids, kids will bring such a joy into your home. They really, really do. But within the joy, I think there's some fine print that you need a magnifying glass to see that says they will utterly destroy your house, okay? Everything. I see all the parents like, yep, my kids did that. Uh, they would just destroy everything. Florence is honestly the main culprit of the messes in our house, or at least she gets blamed for most of them. Uh, she drops food on the floor. She has a cabinet in our house that she has some toys and things like that that she'll often just open grab the bucket of blocks and dump them out and just run away. She won't even play with them. I guess she just likes the sound of them crashing across the floor. And then she'll go over to her kitchen, her little like uh, play kitchen we have in the dining room, and she'll start grabbing her little utensils that she has. And she's just firing the things. She's chucking them behind her. And then she peeks around the corner looking at me like, what's the problem? Like, I'm hanging out. I'm having a good time. I'm playing. So she's making all of these different messes. But whether it's breaking things or disposing of bodily fluids around the house, because potty training, you know how that goes parents, uh, or spilling food, it's almost impossible for her to earn her keep around the house. It's almost impossible for her to do that. But here's the thing. She really doesn't have to. She really doesn't have to. It never occurred to Alexis and I or to her that she has to earn her place in our home. She has a secure place within our home because she is our child. And today, we're going to be, a, be looking at a text that speaks to this very thing, that we don't have to earn our place in the kingdom of God. If you are a child of God, you have a secure place in him. So last week, we had the privilege of having Joshua come in and preach the word, and he is amazing. He did a phenomenal, phenomenal job, but he pondered God's heart for us in our storms and in our suffering. Today, we're going to ponder the heart of God for us when we sin. Something very, very difficult for us to understand. So if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, open it with me to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 18, or you can uh, click it in your app, what have you, but take your copy of the Word of the Lord. God, uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, starting in verse 15. And as you're turning there, the two points or two truths that we're really going to be driving home this morning are, point one, our unworthiness doesn't hinder God's love for us. I need you to hear that. Our unworthiness does not hinder God's love for us. And the second point, Christ doesn't want us to doubt his love for us. 
Second point, Christ doesn't want us to doubt his love for us. So, Gospel of Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 15, this is the word of the Lord. It says, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, if you've been around church or, or been around scripture or anything like that for a period of time, you've probably heard this passage of scripture before. But you may have fallen into the same camp that I did to where you misinterpreted what Jesus was trying to speak here. To gain the, the full understanding, you really need to expound what we've just read. Uh, before that text and right after that text, there are two parables. The parable that is before our text that we read this morning is the parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, the Pharisee is the epitome of, of, of self-righteousness and perfection, if you will, before God. The tax collector, on the other hand, is the epitome of evil and corruption. So in the story, we see both of these, the Pharisee and the tax collector, go into the synagogue, go into the temple to pray. But what we end up seeing is the Pharisee comes in on his own self-righteousness and on his own good works, looking down upon the tax collector, even praying to thank God. He is not as evil, as sinful, and as essentially pitiful as the tax collector that is next to him. The tax collector comes in broken because he knows how unworthy he is to come before the Lord. But here he is coming before the Lord and pleading for mercy and grace. And church, I need you to hear this. One of these men was trusting in his own good works in his own self-righteousness, in his own standing before God. The other was completely dependent upon the grace of God. And Jesus tells us that the tax collector went home justified. Right after our text for today, the second parable is that we see a parable about a rich young man uh, who comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? So here is another person uh, who thinks that his standing before God is completely uh, dependent upon his, essentially his money and his own self-righteousness and good works. God isn't impressed with money. He's not impressed with good works. So the man went home grieved because he wasn't willing to let go of his wealth and self-righteousness to follow Christ. So our passage for this morning is wedged between those two parables. And I think it's for good reason. I truly believe the Lord is trying to show us with the two passages that sandwich our text that this is what you do not do. And in the text that we just read, he is trying to communicate, this is actually what you do. So with that backdrop and that understanding, we can unpack our first point. Our unworthiness does not hinder God's love for us. Think about children for a moment. In the culture of Jesus's day, children were often seen as, as, as a burden. They were seen as a problem for the fact that they couldn't, they don't really do anything. They can't upkeep the house. They can't do chores. They can't go out and take care of whatever else they need to take care of. So up until the point that they can actively go and work, they really don't have any respect around the house. They really don't have any uh, uh, say, if you will. 
And this is the thing that if you look at through the entirety of history that sets Jesus apart. Because in Mark's account of this very story, Jesus is very, very displeased with the disciples because they are telling the kids to shoo-shoo, go away. This is, they're essentially saying, this is a very important conversation for very important people, and you're not one of them, so I need you to leave. With the disciples doing this, they missed a very important part here. They missed the heart of Christ. And I think so many times we can do this very thing with the idea and thought that our unworthiness, just like the disciples thought the children were unworthy to be in the presence of God, our, un- our own unworthiness keeps us from being in the presence of God. You think, yes, I know I have been saved by grace through faith alone. I know my good works don't earn me a spot in the kingdom of God, but I really do believe God is keeping tabs on the things that I'm doing. Maybe he'll have more favor on me if I can do this and don't do that. Or he, he's beginning to be frustrated with me because I keep dealing with this one specific sin. Or maybe you're a person that gravitates to comparison. You're looking at somebody in your life group saying, I know the Lord loves that person more because they read their Bible a whole lot more than I do. I know the Lord loves that person way more than I do because they don't ever yell at their kids. Their marriage is perfect. Everything seems to be going well. So why would the Lord love me? I mean, look at me. But I want to draw your attention to Jesus' words. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. These very words should banish every single one of these thoughts in our mind. And here is why. Because Jesus' love is not contingent upon you. He doesn't love you because of what you do. He loves you because of who he is. He doesn't love you more if you do more. Christ's love for you is already at full strength. It's already maxed out. It's already as wide and deep as it's ever going to be. So your job isn't to make him love you more. As children of God, his love doesn't increase for us. What happens rather is more when we spend time with God, our understanding of how much he already loves us grows. It's not his love growing. It's our awareness growing as we fall deeper and deeper into him. And as his children, church, you need to hear, his heart isn't repelled by your failures. It is not repelled by your failures. In fact, the opposite is true. It's not through managing your sins or becoming this self-righteous spiritual individual where you reach some a level to where the Lord is like, I finally love you. It's the opposite. It's acknowledging and confessing that we are unworthy. It's acknowledging and confessing that we are unrighteous and that we are weak. This draws the heart of God to us. So many of us continue to wade in the shallow end of our spiritual lives. And and I'm not saying that not because it's a lack of you reading your Bible. I'm not saying that because it's a lack of you attending church. I'm not saying that because it's a lack of you being a part of a discipleship group. Many of you within this room are doing that very thing. 
But the hinge point that keeps many of us in the shallow end is we think those things, the Bible reading, the attending of church, the attending of a discipleship group are the grounds and basis for Christ to love you. And that's not true. When we continue to think that way, we're continually chasing after something we've already obtained, the acceptance and love of God as his children. Our fallen hearts think, yeah, God saved me by grace, but he loves me based on how I follow his rules. Or he loved me back then when I was saved, but he's frustrated with me now. Surely, God doesn't want to hear me confess the same sin over and over and over and over again. Has anyone ever thought that before? Here I go again. God, I brought this before you yesterday, and I'm bringing it before you again today. Forgive me. Dan Ortland says, Jesus did not die and rise again. On our behalf, only to stand now with arms crossed, seeing how we will do in response. He did not die and rise again on our behalf, only to stand with his arms crossed, seeing how we will do in response. Beloved, our sin is not the thing that repels Christ, but rather it compels him to come closer. In this, you need to understand, I am not saying your sin is something light. Our sin is grievous. It is terrible, and it is a great offense to a holy God. That's why his son died and rose again. That's why he sent him and was crucified to drink every last drop of the wrath of God on the cross for our sin. This text and this meaning that I'm trying to get across is for his children that are already in his family. But as many of his kids, they misunderstand God's heart. God's heart over our sin is not characterized by disgust. It is not characterized by frustration. It is characterized by compassion. Think about it this way. You have a sick child. Your child's in the hospital. You can see their body riddled with sickness. You can see their pain. You can see their suffering. And you're grieved by it. You're not grieved over the look of your child in the hospital sick because you're disgusted. You're grieved because you're moved with compassion. Because you want nothing more than your child to be healed and walk out of that place. This is the way that God views his children with our sin. He is not disgusted with us. There is freedom in him, so he knows that we can walk out healed. Knowing this should free us in our response to be filled with grace and not fear of God, not to shrink back from him when we sin, but to lean into him. Because all of God's anger toward your sin, if you are a child of his, has been laid on Jesus. So the only thing that is left for you is to be lavished with grace and lavished with mercy. The wrath is done. The wrath is done. So 
to draw near to God when you sin because God's heart wells up with compassion for you. More than you ever could imagine. Church, I need you to listen to me. Christian, the beloved, he does not long to destroy you. He longs to restore you time and time and time again. You will never exhaust his grace and his mercy. Never exhaust his grace and his mercy. You will never wear him down. This leads me to my second point. The second truth we'll see today is that Christ does not want us to doubt his love. I know many of us within this room, as we walk through life, can begin to doubt God's love for us. Luke 18, 17 says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus doesn't use the example of children because they are morally innocent. Children, if you have them and understand, they're actually quite sinful. (laughs) But that's the point. He uses this example of children because it never occurs to that sinful child that they have to earn a spot in the arms of God. They simply come to him. Regardless of circumstance, they come to him. You see, an infant never stops to wonder if she is worthy to be nourished and loved by her mother. A two-year-old never stops to think that their daddy would love them a little bit more if they could color within the lines. This is what Jesus is getting at with the example of children. Childlike faith isn't naive. Childlike faith faith trusts that there's a place in God's family even when we sin and when we fall. The children didn't consider whether or not they were worthy to sit on Jesus' lap. They simply came to him. They ran to him. It makes me think about in the middle of these two services, between first and second service, every single Sunday, Florence runs down the hallway screaming, Daddy! Because I leave in the morning before she wakes up. She goes running down the hallway and just, I mean, Brian Erlacher hits my leg as hard as she can and hugs me tight. She never has to think, my dad doesn't want this of me. This is how we should approach God, running down the hallway, barreling through whatever we need to barrel through to get into the arms of our heavenly Father. This is how Christ wants us to approach him. Jesus invited people to come into his kingdom that, that didn't earn their right to be there. He gave it to them. He invites people to come into his kingdom that will track mud all over the carpet. He invites the screw-ups, the mess-ups. He invites people that will make a mess of the entirety of his table. But they have a place because they are his children. And this very thing is so unlike any way that we love. If you think about your family, there's so much brokenness in our earthly families that tend to color our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Many of you have known my testimony. The, the hindered relationship I had with my earthly father gave me a hindered relationship with my Heavenly Father because I felt contingent that I had to be good enough to earn His love. 
that I simply needed to do this or to do that, to hear the word, son, I'm proud of you. And that hindered the way that I looked at God because I simply felt I've got to meet an expectation for him to be proud of me. Church, that is not the case. That is not his attitude towards us. At some point in our lives, we begin to feel like our acceptance by others is based upon a performance. It's based upon the qualities that we have, and it doesn't take long, if we're honest, for a child to learn this. At some point, we begin to wonder if mom and dad would be more proud of me if I hit the game-winning home run. At some point, we begin to ponder that mom and dad would be so much more proud of me if I was to get this scholarship or go to this school. At some point, they begin to ponder if mom and dad would just have some respect for me if I made this amount of money or the mothers in the room, you might think that your mom would respect you a little bit more if you were just a little bit better of a parent. And then we look at our own lives and the way that we interact with the people that are around us. The way that we love the people, often based upon performance. You meet my standards, so I'll have a better relationship with you. You don't meet my standards, so I'm going to back away from this relationship. This is why acceptance from God, based upon no performance, feels so foreign. Acceptance based on nothing feels foreign to a sinful people. And so grasping that idea that God's love isn't conditioned on how well you do or if you meet some quota makes no sense. It feels wrong. There's a passage of scripture, Isaiah 55, starting in verse 7. It says, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God. Listen to this. For he will abundantly pardon, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We often hear this passage of Scripture and think he, we think of his, his highness, of just how he's orchestrating things and how he's working. He's far above anything that we could ever imagine. That is true. He is far above anything intellectually that we could grasp. So his ways are higher than our ways. But the point that is being driven home by Jesus within this text is he's speaking to the heart of the sinner here. He's addressing people who fail Time and time and time again. Because when someone fails us time and time again, what do we do? We strike them off of our list. And the Lord is saying, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. So he is saying to the sinner, to the one that's failing over and over and over again, turn away from your sin and come back to me. And I will have compassion on you. When our sinful hearts say, there is no way, you have to be tired of my sinfulness, 
of my brokenness, of me dragging the same sin before you day after day after day. Surely you're annoyed with me and you want nothing to do with me anymore. In that moment, there's God's voice cutting through our resistance, cutting through the darkness, cutting through the lies of the enemy saying, no, my thoughts are not your thoughts. The way you think I should treat you, I don't. My thoughts of you are not your thoughts of you. My ways toward you are not your ways when someone wrongs you. So turn from your sin, my child, and come back to me that I may have compassion on you. Once again, I will forgive your sin abundantly. Hear that. I will forgive your sin abundantly. These are the words of our Savior. Church, just as Christ put out his arms, waiting for the children to come to him, so he puts out his arms to every single adult in this room waiting for you to come to him with all of our insecurities, with all of our shortcomings, with all of our failures, all of our mishaps, he says, come. My child, stop trying to earn your keep here. Stop trying to earn your love or my love. It's already been given to you. Simply come to me so that way I can lavish you with compassion and grace and mercy. You don't have to impress me. Just come. You will never win him with your impressive talents, nor stand out to him because of your good works. So, don't open your Bibles in an effort to climb some ladder of acceptance to reach some new heights of God. Rather, open your Bibles so the bottom can fall out beneath you and you can fall into his grace and to his mercy. Church, he is a sea without bottom or shore that we constantly fall down into. And as we grow in our understanding of who he is, his love doesn't grow for us. Our awareness of his love for us already grows. So the sea gets that much bigger and that much deeper as we understand how much our heavenly father loves his children. He is a sea without bottom or shore. Church, this morning, I want to close with the words from a recent hymn. It's a beautiful hymn entitled, His Mercy is More. I want you to hear these words. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. So church, if you are a follower of Jesus within this room, you are a child of God, therefore you do not have to earn your acceptance. 
You have a place in his family. You have a place in his kingdom for the very fact that you are his child. And there is absolutely nothing that you can do that can pluck you from the hands of God. Nothing. So stop picking up the chains and sin that you've already been freed from. Leave and drop the guilt. Leave and drop the shame. They have all been crucified with Christ. Live in light of his love for you, his grace for you, and his mercy for you. And may you sink ever so deeply into his love, his understanding, into who he is every single day of your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you're so merciful and you are so kind to a people that are so undeserving. We have no right to be called your child. And yet, because of your mercy and because of your grace and because of your love, here we are, your children. Father, I pray for your beloved within this room that they would throw off every weight and sin that clings so closely, that they would come to you because your yoke is easy and your burden is light. You are gentle and lowly in heart, God. You receive them with compassion. And in that compassion and in your hand and in that grace, may we run. May we tell people of this grace and mercy that we have found, of this acceptance into a family that has no condition. the love within this family is unconditional that if they would repent of their sin and come to you they will have every part of you you will withhold nothing Father may we feel that freedom May we feel the freedom of a child to run through the halls shouting and dancing and rejoicing because we are in the presence of our Father. Not worried about if I'm wearing the right thing or if I'm doing X, Y, and Z in hopes to make him proud. You love us, God. pray you would reinforce that in all of our hearts and all of our souls that your mercy is more and you've welcomed a weak and vile people into your home and transformed them in the blood of your son in your precious sweet and gracious holy name we pray these things 
church, a lot of the, the content, I'm going to say, that we covered today that seems so foreign to us is obviously out of Scripture, but it's also backed by a book called Gentle and Lowly. If you, we handed this out a couple of months ago. If you're new here and your family has not received one, you can go out of these doors and grab one. I would implore you to read it. It's on my reading list. I'm getting to it. But every single person that I have talked to about this book has been moved to tears. Because it is allowing them to see the weight and the beauty of the unconditional love that is given to them from their Father. So I will plead with you, grab your book and read it. And if you're in this room and you've never, never surrendered your life to Christ, this love and this compassion and this mercy is offered to you today. Because outside of that, Outside of the family of God, your sin has a penalty. And it is death. And if you were to stand before God today, you will either be covered by the perfect blood of Christ or you will stand in your own self-righteousness. And we know how that ends. So I would plead with you. Repent of your sin and come to know Jesus as your Savior. And receive this grace, receive this mercy, and plunge yourself into the bottomless ocean and sea that is our Savior. Church, I love you. I thank you for being here today. May we stand and worship.